arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Tonight, St. Paul police are renewing a call for help to find a hit-and-run driver. Investigators think the vehicle that hit him is a 2008 to 2010 Sage Green Hyundai Santa Fe. Now, they were able to narrow it down through surveillance video, witnesses, and paint analysis from the BCA. So how does the BCA match paint chips to cars? Good question. Heather Brown shows us the science. How small is that paint chip? That is about the size of like the period on a, a business card. It's like less than um, a millimeter. Sometimes the evidence is left on the road. In other cases, it's a tiny piece on a victim's clothes. They will search the clothing. So they'll scrape it down to see if there's any, what, what debris is on it. BCA scientist Susan Gross works on these types of hit and runs. Usually they see one to three a year. In 2008, this lab identified a type of Jeep Grand Cherokee believed to have killed 65-year-old Jimmy Nisser in Minneapolis. Unfortunately, that case remains unsolved. What's in this dish? So this is just debris, but it's going to be, you know, soil or dirt, sand. In this sample she created for us, she found two paint chips hardly visible to the naked eye. We'll take that paint chip and we'll do a cross section, mm -hmm. kind of like how you slice bread. In that sliver, you can see the four layers of paint. This is the clear coat mm -hmm. and this is a color coat and the two primer colors on the bottom. She then uses this machine to analyze each layer separately. These peaks can tell me what type of paint it is and the components in it. Mm -hmm. And I take that information and I put it into the database. Now what's in the database? There's 21,000 vehicles in the database mm -hmm. and um, there's about 85,000 layers of paint. Eventually, she gets a list of 145 vehicles. That's when she uses chemistry by computer and hand to narrow it down even more. How many cars generally end up on your final list? It varies. In our sample, we finished with five. It takes a lot longer than <laughs> you see on CSI. It's not just you run it, put it in the instrument, and you get your answer. Heather Brown. There's a lot of legwork. WCCO, 4 News. Now, while that vehicle database is huge, there are still some holes in it. So every year, the BCA, along with labs across the country, have to contribute 60 new samples. Yeah, once a year, they'll spend a day at a junkyard scraping paint from cars for the database. So the fabulous Fletcher Paint Factory has done an analysis on the paint on Webster's boat. Jones may be able to track this down, but Coco is the one who breaks the case wide open, and he and Jones are about to depart Prince William to follow up on evidence in the case. Jones gets a bad feeling when they arrive at their destination. Somebody is posing as Coco. Here is episode four of The Handyman's Secret by Robert P. Fitton, starting now. The Handyman's Secret by R.P. Fitton. Chapter 14 Strickland raced down a shore road without the cruiser lights flashing. Jones knew everyone in the church hall had seen his confrontation with Bricker. Maybe he should have avoided a showdown, yet Bricker's prejudicial beliefs sent him into a tizzy. I just should have kept quiet. Well, it's done now. I just keep wondering who would rip apart the maintenance-free. 
My guess is O'Connell. Could have worked with the courts and gotten a search warrant, said Strickland. Yeah, if he hadn't gone into hiding. Or maybe it was Boudreaux. Wherever she is. The fact that his cruiser was at the Howard place Monday night bothers me more and more. Pinky says O'Connell reported being up the interstate toward Paxson on Monday night, not in Hamilton. Obviously, reports can be falsified. I keep thinking about what Harvey Miller told me. About a half a million dollar policy in Mabel's name? Strickland paused at the flashing light across from Sal's grill and zipped around the corner and down along the bay. Why was O'Connell even over there on Monday night? I've suspected a relationship with Mabel because they're both gone. While she wasn't at her sister's in Millbury, according to Moxie, he's got people watching the place. I may go up there myself. Let's think through this ransacking of the maintenance-free, George. Somebody wanted something on the boat. Webster went out early before an approaching storm. The storm veers out to sea and then he's murdered. Boudreaux waits for the boat to return on the marina bridge. Why? Inside the boat is a soda glass and a napkin marked R slash L. Webster ate the chicken Marcella before he was murdered, probably off the boat, but he didn't die until he went for the radio. Well, Webster wouldn't be missing if the storm came in like the killer wanted. He slowed at the marina bridge and his phone rang. Jones stared at the channel beyond the silver bridge rails as Strickland talked to Wendell back at the station. What is it? Strickland pulled the cruiser onto the high grass near the far side of the bridge. He shut off the engine and set down the phone. Nothing. I mean, no arrests, clean record. A few minor traffic violations. But I'll tell you one thing, she's never worked a day in her life. But she's always liked the horses. The old man bought her horses as a kid. She got into this horse training thing, and she's been doing that for the past few years. They stepped outside, and Jones rounded the hood and put on his silver frame glasses. Strickland started down the hill toward the docks. And O'Connell, he may be involved in this more than you think. Drugs? asked Strickland. Maybe in tracking the deal down. In fact, somebody might have got to him and Mabel. Maybe they're dead. Well, that's crazy. Is it? asked Jones as they reached the docks. Captain Kendall stood near the maintenance free and spoke with a few people on a small cabin cruiser. Something made him disappear, George. A lot of damage. We don't even know if this was drug-related. Call in the police dogs, said Jones. Well, the only police dogs are in Prince William, and I'm not calling Dom Pacheco to make an ass out of myself. You're right, you don't need Dom for that. Oh, very funny. Strickland pretended to be upset, but Jones could see him smile. He walked ahead to the plank connecting the dock with the boat. Jones looked back to the road before Strickland climbed onto the plank. What's the matter now? I keep thinking Hooper's going to show up. Well, Moxie has very good things to say about Hooper. Decorated war veteran, very successful in intelligence. Him? Yeah, maybe you can work with him. No way, the man is a chugglehead. In fact, he has Bucky working for him. Jones removed his suit coat and loosened his tie as he followed Strickland up the plank. What was he dedicated for, leaving the service and sparing everyone from listening to his nonsense? Strickland tried not to laugh. Oh, you'll regret it if he comes up with something. The only thing he'll come up with is more aggravation. Planks were scattered about the desk, exposing the inner supports in the outer hull. What a mess. How can this not be drug-related? Could be any type of contraband. 
They walked across the weathered boards and down the narrow stairs to the swinging green doors below deck. Inside the little cabin where they had found Webster's body, the walls and ceilings were also split apart. Jones moved along the counter and to the radio by the window. He gazed through the smeared glass. The captain continued speaking with the cabin crews of people above. Jones turned toward the green doors as the maintenance tree rocked and someone crossed onto the deck. What? asked the voice on the deck stairs. The doors did not move when Jones pushed. Okay, Hooper, stop the games and come down here. The doors opened and the gray-haired Tom McGill stuck his head inside. You thought I was Detective Hooper. He's not a detective, said Jones. What are you doing here, Tom? Oh, excuse me for trying to make a living, but I do run a newspaper. Thias is just a little edgy this morning. Oh, I heard all about you blasting Bricker. Me? And he keeps thinking Detective Hooper is trailing him, said Strickland. So, any truth to drugs being involved in the Webster thing? Strickland looked around. I'm debating whether to call the dogs in from Prince William, and I need to cordon off this place. What do you think happened, Tom? McGill stroked his mustache. I think O'Connell and Mabel are somehow on the periphery of this murder, having an affair, and I think O'Connell has a handle on whatever Webster was up to that night. Pinky has a local police guy watching the sister's house and O'Connell's apartment, said Jones, gazing across the sailboats in the bay. We're not going to break this until we question O'Connell or Mabel. Or find R slash L. Jones nodded. I'm going to have dinner tonight at St. Bart's with Father Gallagher. And you're right. Without R slash L, Tom, we've got nothing. The Handyman's Secret by R.P. Fitton Chapter 15 Jones tried to consciously nix thoughts of Hooper and the investigation as he answered questions about his team from a Mr. Harriman and Melanie Willett of First Parish's youth group, leaving Hamilton, the college, the murder case, and Clyde Hooper behind, as well as downing a few glasses of Father Gallagher's 1969 French Chablis, allowed Jones to relax, yet thoughts of the murder persisted. Strickland had told him the initial tests on the red paint were inconclusive, but no more tests were scheduled. Gallagher perched at the end of the long table, and leaned slightly on his chair arm like a lion ready to pounce on his prey. Well, now that we have sufficiently wrapped up the football, basketball, and baseball seasons for my favorite college, maybe we should have a discussion of what happened inside of First Parish's church hall this afternoon. Something happened? asked Jones. Oh, yes, good news does travel fast, Matthias. Harriman raised his brows. Father's already given us a full description. But we know how Reverend Bricker can be, said Melanie. He's involved in our youth group and takes full advantage of our camp facilities, said Harriman. Well, I don't know how well you know Bricker, but he has it in for both me and Father Gallagher. Why is that? Yes, pray tell, Matthias, why is that? asked Gallagher. I'm not happy about it. All I want to do is locate a chapel. Very small, not auspicious on that land. It would be nice to have that land, but there's always a question of funds. Melanie turned to Gallagher. I'm confused. If you have the funds and we don't, why wouldn't the Reverend sell the land to you? I tried to ask him that question this afternoon, said Jones. Your dispute is all over town. Just a friendly little chat with the good Reverend. And now some constable shows up on my doorstep with a letter, a notarized letter, telling me to cease and desist said Gallagher, smiling. Well, I tried to be civil with the man. He began by correcting me about his homily, I mean his sermon, 
Then he told me to tell you, Jim, to forget about any intrusion into our town. Galga's voice grew louder. Intrusion? Oh, he talked about his church and his land, and then he threw me out. Reverend is very possessive about the land, said Harriman. Gallagher pointed at Jones. Good for you, Matthias, and he hasn't heard the end of this. I am sending a return letter. Jim, maybe you should just drop it. Forget about the letter. He's not worth it. Not now. If his attitude were different, I would really like your Christian youth group to yield about the Washington Street land. Kitchen phone rang, and Gallagher's rotund housekeeper leaned in the opening. Father! Company? <laughs> maybe it's Reverend Bricker, said Jones, and they all laughed. It's for you, Matthias, she said. Excuse me, gentlemen, Melanie. Jones set down his napkin and skirted the table. Once in the kitchen, the housekeeper handed him the phone. Thank you, Mrs. Crawford. Father's upset, isn't he? Well, serve him some of that pecan pie and you're quiet down, said Jones, and he put the receiver to his ear. Jonesy, Racers Lounge, Sagamore, Massachusetts, on Cape Cod. How'd you track that one down? One of the girls at the club worked on the Cape. Five years ago, the pendulum was a racist lounge. Called down there, they still use some of the old napkins, according to Pete, the guy who works the bar. Well, I'm going down there, said Jones. Me too. I need to find out the truth about J.B. I'm at St. Bart's. I know where you are. Listen, I'm taking the vet. I'll see you in a half an hour. Jones stayed long enough to devour two pieces of pecan pie and a dish of vanilla ice cream. Gallagher, incredibly, had convinced Harriman and Melanie not to build their youth center on Washington Street. Harriman was a Red Sox fan, and while Melanie talked with Mrs. Crawford, Jones waited at the window as the Red Sox game blasted from the bulky wood console TV. Gallagher leaned forward in his recliner. You can't win with no depth in your pitching. I thought you said they were going to win it this year, Jim said Jones at the curtains. An occasional car passed under the streetlights. Did I say that? You say it when they leave for Florida. Well, maybe they will. Jones's smile dropped when Hooper's old brown pickup signaled for the rectory parking lot. Well, what the hell is he doing here? What's the matter, Matthias? Asked Gallagher, the remote control still in his hand. Hooper. Who? The guy Lark Larson hired to investigate Webster Howard's murder. Are you heading out? asked Gallagher as he stood. Yes, thanks for the dinner, Jim. Mrs. Crawford, Melanie, Mr. Harriman, have a great night. Mrs. Crawford showed him out the front door. He trotted down the porch steps and rushed into the brightly lit parking lot. The driver's side seat of Hooper's pickup was empty. Hooper! Hooper, where are you, you lunatic? Hooper's annoying voice shot out from behind the van on a speaker. Let's hit the highway, Jones! Jones ran around the back, but still did not see Hooper. Hold it, Jones! Jones located a small enclosed speaker below the rear window. Then Bucky Driscoll sneezed on the same channel. Hey, chew! What? Get out here, Bucky. Should I go out there, M5? Hold your position, Walter! Hooper was seated in front of a black-and-white monitor and had a microphone in his hand. Good evening, gentlemen. Hooper, what are you doing? Testing the equipment and remaining undercover. Ah, uh, yeah, you do that. Hooper spoke at a higher volume through the speakers. I have valuable information.
information that you will not learn unless you let me tag along. Coco's blue Corvette moved onto a side street and pulled up to Jones. The window zipped downward. Hey, hey, come on, Jonesy, get in. Jones checked the truck bed tarps. I have to find Hooper and get him out of this. What are you talking about? Coco left the vet running and put on the brake. Then he stepped from the car. Hooper, is that moron still around? He's been hiding somewhere. Coco furrowed his brow. Hey, Hooper, get your ass out here. I'll smash out the windows in this shitbox. I take exception to your remarks, said Hooper into the speaker as he emerged from behind a thick maple tree. He held the small microphone in his hand, connected to a handheld box. Coco squinted as he watched Hooper step into the streetlight. Hey, listen, James Bond, you're out of this. Take your toys and go back home, bozo. Hooper still spoke into the microphone. I have my orders. Yeah. Coco listened closely. That better not be who I think it is. No, it's not me. Oh, is that right, Roden? asked Coco as he pointed to the side corner of the rectory. Tell him, M5. Jones turned back to the truck, but Hooper again had vanished. Hooper, where are you now? Coco slowly walked back to the rectory. You better watch out. Detective Hooper knows karate. Coco moved closer to the squatting Bucky. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, he'll take you down. Coco now stood over Bucky. Uh-oh. I'm going to give you ten seconds, Roden. Then I'm getting in the vet and I'm going to run you down. Bucky fell backward and rolled into the darkness. And both of you, stay out of the Howard investigation. The Handyman's Secret by R.P. Fenton Chapter 16 I've never been to Cape Cod, said Jones as the vet's headlights brightened a green and white sign for the Sagamore Bridge. Good beaches, but the traffic is brutal at both bridges in the summertime. There are two bridges? Yeah. We come down to the vineyard more than the Cape. We fly in. I knew somebody back home that summered on Nantucket Island. Yeah, they must have been pretty rich then. Coco accelerated the vet into an outside lane under a gothic arch leading to the rounded pewter-colored Sagamore Bridge over the Cape Cod Canal. The moonbeams sparkled on the dark ocean ripples at the end of the canal, and the upper bridge lights flickered in the car. I think she put the cleaner in the thermos, Coco. Coco held the wheel. I hear you, Jonesy. Where do you think she went? Coco shook his head. Sometimes the people you care about, they just drop off the charts. And as hard as you try, you never figure out why. Here's the thing, and I've said this all along. Yeah, she could have tried to poison Webster or even make him get sick because of what happened to her dog. Coco veered left to the exit as if he were on a race course. He nodded. Right, if she wanted to kill Howard, she could have dumped that cleaner in the thermos bottle. Howard may have taken a few gulps and left the thermos open, I don't know. He turned at the light at the bottom of the hill. Two prodigious cube buildings and a towering concrete smokestack were visible at the end of the canal. A series of green oil tanks were brightened by additional white lights, and the full moon coated the silhouetted coast in rock jetties. Why not just drive down here, Jonesy? Why would Howard take his boat? We have to ask around inside there. Coco moved in low gear under the prodigious cement bridge supports. They paralleled the canal and approached the cylindrical storage tanks. He steered past the barbed wire above the chain-link fence. The road wound through the darkened scrub brush into a more lighted area near the canal. 
The pendulum appeared as a curled, shingled fish shanty along several sections across from a dirt parking lot packed with cars and pickup trucks. This place is a dive. Jones grabbed an Enterprise article about Webster with his picture at the top. The bar pumped bass music into the full parking lot and people danced inside the window span. I get a very uncivil feeling about this place, said Jones. To his left, under the light, he spotted Mabel Howard's car. New Hampshire license plates. Ah, so they're here, said Coco. Webster may have taken that napkin from Mabel. Let's go find Mr. Stilts there and his gal. Near the door, marijuana-laden smoke drifted outside like fog pouring off the bay. How can O'Connell think he'd get away with this? Because he's stupid, Jonesy. Jones stepped onto the boardwalk. The crowd noise in the base through the open doors grew louder. He peered through the screens, past the animated dance floor, at a West Coast baseball game playing on a huge widescreen TV. Side TV sets above the booths played old black-and-white movies, while competitors in a wild dart game argued in the barn board area down back. Jones opened the spring-activated door, and he and Coco took seats at the center bar. Coco ordered two draft beers from a balding bartender wearing a red jersey with the name Hooch pressed on the chest. Fishnets sagged from the rafters, and dusty red and blue glass railroad lanterns and weathered lobster traps hung next to chipped red and white buoys. Hooch set the beers on the thick glossy wood bar, and Coco slid a $20 bill to him. Keep the rest. Where's Pete? Who wants him? Coco lit a cigarette. Hooch deposited an ashtray in front of him. Tell him I'm the dude from New Hampshire who asked about Race's Lounge. Hooch nodded and Jones hit Coco's shoulder. Jones pointed at the menu in white chalk on the blackboard near the TV. Chicken Marcella. Webster had Chicken Marcella. An older guy with a crew cut looked at Jones and Coco as he emerged from the back room. He also had a red shirt but filled it fully with his muscular physique. The man leaned forward. I'm Pete. Coco shook his hand. Coco Stefani, I own uh, Club Max up in Prince William, New Hampshire. Okay? Out of the corner of his eyes, Jones saw a $100 bill slip into Pete's hand. Guy was murdered up in New Hampshire. He had one of the old napkins from this place on his boat. What did he look like? Jones handed the newspaper to him. Short, maybe five foot eight. When was he in here? He asked, looking up from the article. He handed it back to Jones. It was last Monday. Pete's blue eyes tightened and he stroked his chin. Hey, you guys hang loose. I gotta ask around. Wait, there was a tall state trooper in here, maybe 6'6", with a lady who had big teeth. Eh, no cops in here. Then he stopped. There was a tall guy in here asking questions about the three guys in the suits and the little guy with the stocking cap and sunglasses. Great, thanks. That was him, said Coco. He took a sip of beer. Nothing about Howard, though. You trust Hooch? asked Jones. Coco looked straight ahead and took a drag on his cigarette. Jonesy, I don't trust nobody. Jones took a full sip of beer and tried to speak over the music and the crowd buzz. I think if Webster was here, somebody would have seen him. Why? asked Coco, puffing on the cigarette. Jonesy, he came down here on the boat for a reason. Well, the point is, what was he doing here? Right. 
Coco nodded and drank the beer as Jones caught sight of someone in an army jacket running by the outside windows. He leaped off the stool. What the hell are you doing, Jonesy? Can't be. What? I thought I just saw Hooper running through the parking lot. You got a Hooper complex, my friend. Now that clown is back in New Hampshire. I suppose you're right. Of course I'm right. Now sit down and enjoy your beer. A sleazy-looking guy in a dark shirt, gray hair, and purple tie moved with Pete from the side booths. The guy had a fat, pockmarked face. Pete motioned with his hand. This is Maurice Ranch. Coco Stefani from New Hampshire. That's not Coco Stefani, he said. What are you talking about? asked Coco as he stood. I just met with Stefani half an hour ago, bud. Coco pulled out his license from his wallet. Ranch studied the plastic license. Licenses uh, can be faked. Listen, you huckdog lackey, he said, moving closer to Ranch. Somebody's in here pretending to be me. You really want me to believe that? I don't care what you believe, jerk. We're talking about a murder in New Hampshire. Murders happen. I suggest you find out who saw this man in here. I'll see what I can do. Oh, yeah, well, we'll be at the bar. Get us information and we'll be out of here. Ranch headed to the back room. Hooper came in here and impersonated you. Coco lit another cigarette. He did, and he'll be flying off that bridge over the canal out there. I've had it with Hooper. I'm calling Strickland. Cool your jets, hotshot. We'll take care of him later. I'm making a few calls myself. He put out his cigarette. I want to know who O'Connell is tailing. The only good thing is Hooper figured this out independently, so he must be on the right track. Will you pay attention, Jonesy? asked Coco. O'Connell was here and is here trying to find answers. I gotta use the men's room. Jones finished his beer. I do too. He followed Coco along the bar, down a hallway to the right. Coco pushed open the door with a brass men's sign tacked to the wood. Then he sniffed the air. What the hell is that smell? Forget it, Jonesy. Let's get the hell out of here. Hey, you all right in there? He heard Bucky's voice. I'm not here. Coco ran across the tiles. He smashed his foot against the door. The door crashed against the stall, and Bucky Driscoll stood with binoculars around his neck. You should have known you'd be the one in here stinking up this place, rodent. Ah, oh, I got a bad gut. I had too much pizza and onions. Listen, you moron. Did you tell these people you were me? Ah, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Hooper, said Jones. Detective Hooper. Jones began coughing. Come on, let's get out of this pit. Bucky waddled out in his Bermuda shorts and camouflage shirt. Coco waited, but Bucky was at the door. Aren't you going to wash your hands, rodent? Why? Coco shook his head and stepped back into the corridor. Just wash your hands, Bucky, said Jones. Ah, if you say so. I'll be out in the hall. Huh? Jones pressed his lips and opened the door. Coco looked back to the bar. Telling you, Jonesy, we'll find out what that lame brain is doing here with Hooper. Then I'm sending them the hell out of here. What do you mean? Driscoll's going to take a long trip with his buddy Hooper. One way. He's just a bumbler, Coco. Well, go let him bumble somewhere else. I don't see Hooper anywhere. He's probably outside. Jones tightened his brows again and looked at Coco. Then he pushed open the men's room door. Where are you, Bucky? He felt a cool breeze against his skin. Coco moved in left in front of an open window. Looks like Humpty Dumpty just squeezed out the window. Help by Hooper, no doubt. Ranch entered the restroom with two humongous men with shoulders larger than the doorframe. Get them the hell out of here and break their bones. 
I don't think so, said Coco, removing his handgun, and all three men recoiled. Coco waved the gun through the air. All three of you, get in the stall. All three men began sniffing the air as they backed into the stall. You start counting, punk, and when you reach 500, you walk out of here. You come out beforehand, and I'll blow your head off. Coco shut the stall door and pointed at the window. Both he and Jones quickly crawled into the parking lot. They sprinted toward the Corvette, but Jones did not see the Mercedes. O'Connell's gone. What the hell's he doing down here in the first place? Coco started the car and the vet tires sprayed rocks over the parked cars. He shot out the front exit and back toward the bridge, but he passed the exit for the highway and continued along the canal. Where are you going? I ain't going back the way they think I'm going. I told you, I don't trust nobody. These guys don't know nothing about Howard. They just don't want us in here. A few minutes later, Coco passed under the bridge pylons, but he ran the red light and zipped along the canal. The question is whether O'Connell was here with Mabel. Was he investigating Webster's murder, or did he kill Webster? This didn't go the way we wanted it to, Jonesy. We didn't exactly make friends down here tonight. Coco passed a few slow-moving cars and raced up the hills overlooking the canal. There's a second bridge down there. Jones spotted the bridge atop the hill as Coco activated the phone in his car. Call Mr. Fiore. Fiore? Yeah, Tangerine Face there, Ranch, is in for a little surprise. Good evening, Coco. How are you? Fine, sir. I'm here with uh, Coach Jones. Matt, how are you? I'm doing fine, Mr. Fiore. Mr. Fiore, we're on Cape Cod tonight, and we received a very unwelcome reception at a place called the Pendulum. Dude named Raunch and his buddy Hooch, they threatened Jonesy and me with bodily harm. He implied he knew where he could find me. We'll take care of it. Thank you, sir. Pass the word back to Bruno. Good night. The line clicked. Fury's not going to kill him, is he? Coco winced as they moved up a small hill to a large roundabout. Jonesy, I'm just getting some protection for both of us. Fury will send somebody out to see Raunch and the other clown and set him straight. That's it. The key to this is some guy in a stocking cap and the people in the suits. Yeah, it sounds like a payoff to me. Coco pulled up the large roundabout and then veered onto an identical bridge over the canal. Yellow overhead lights flashed into the Corvette. Coco had just added a playlist to the sound system when a siren sounded behind him and a flashing red and blue police light filled the inside of the car. What the hell is this? I'm going 35 miles an hour. Jones looked into the side mirror at Hooper's old truck. It's not a cop, it's Hooper. I haven't got time for this crap. He shifted and rocketed away from Hooper and down the other side into the darkness. That dimwit could get in big trouble pulling the phony cop routine. I never saw his truck. This is an alert. You didn't see me? Shut up, said Coco, hanging up. Then Jones's phone rang. Matthias Jones. Detective Hooper here. Driscoll is missing. Well, I'm sure he's back at the pendulum, Hooper, probably in the bathroom stalls. I really don't care about your problems. Give me that, said Coco, and he took the phone. Hey, secret agent, go home to Mommy. He hung up the phone and threw it to Jones. Apparently Bucky is missing. Ha, huh, guess God's listening to my prayers. Jones yawned. What a nightmare. The Handyman's Secret by R.P. Fitton Chapter 17 Jones set the plastic bag containing red paint scrappings from the maintenance-free on the kitchen counter next to the sliders. He took in the last few spoonfuls of a granola cereal as his cell phone rang. As he chewed the mix, he picked up the phone. 
Matthias Jones. I want one million dollars in cash. Said a muffled, raspy voice. Yeah, and I want to play in the Super Bowl, he said, hanging up. He opened the dishwasher and placed the bowl and spoon inside. Again, the phone rang. Jones. Jones paused because he knew the voice was serious. I don't know who you are, pal, but you're a fool if you think you can get away with this. We'll call back later today. Hey, wait! The line clicked. Jones gripped the phone, then he speed-dialed George Strickland. Hello, George Strickland. George! I was just going to call you. The state police in Massachusetts raided racist lungs, the pendulum. Everyone disappeared. Look, George, I just received a call about Bucky being kidnapped. Why would somebody want to kidnap Bucky? That's about the dumbest thing anyone could do. I told you, he was involved in this thing last night on the Cape. What do they want? They want a million dollars, said Jones, and Strickland laughed so long Jones had to interrupt him. Oh, yeah, a million dollars. George, he's really kidnapped. Yeah, oh, well. Whoever it was said they'd call back later today. Why would somebody think they could kidnap Bucky for a million dollars? I don't know. I'm headed to the Fletcher Paint Lab. Matthias, the paint's already been checked. It's nothing definitive. Do you know when the kidnapper is calling? No. Stop by here and I'll get you a second phone and you can call me right away. I'll let Pinky and Captain Moxie know what's going on. George, again I ask, who would want to kidnap Bucky? I don't know the answer to that, Matthias. Jones signal for the second Prince William exit along the brick buildings housing the Fletcher Paint Factory. Jones picked up the cell phone Strickland had given him before he left Hamilton. Then he yawned. Rough night, Jonesy? Why would somebody want a million dollars for Bucky? I wouldn't pay a dime. The rodent got himself into that mess. Him and his big mouth. No one's going to pay a million dollars. Say la vie. Coco looked out the Jeep window and quickly back at Jones. You're right, Jonesy. A million dollars for Driscoll? How dumb is that? Did J.B. do that? Bucky was out at the track. Why, because her old man is loaded? Look, she does charity work, Jonesy. Maybe O'Connell wants the dough so he can run off with Howard's wife. But Coco, nobody's going to pay that. (laughs) Maybe Driscoll has a secret stash, said Coco, laughing. He looked out the window toward the old industrial section of Prince William, centrally located near the railroad tracks. Here's where old man Fletcher turns the dollars. Jones took the commercial exit 25C and headed into the city traffic. He stared at the rows of three-decker apartments, but Hooper kept popping into his head. You don't think Hooper is pulling some kind of stunt with Bucky? That idiot, who knows? I need to know exactly where that paint was manufactured. State police only identified it as boat paint. Big deal. Then maybe I can track it down. Sounds like a long shot to me, Jonesy. Maybe. His phone sounded and he locked eyes with Coco. Jones. One million dollars. At 5 p.m., a small boat precisely five miles east of Hanson's Marina. No one will be around. If there is no boat or no money, Driscoll's body will come floating upward. Coco took the phone. Who the hell is this? The line clicked and Jones called Strickland. George, they want money in a small boat five miles due east of Hanson's Marina at five o'clock. Matthias, where am I going to get a million dollars? I don't know. Did it 
sound like O'Connell? I have no idea who it is. To his right were a series of brick buildings housing the Fletcher paint facilities. Jones signaled and brought the jeep forward to a glassed-in office area. Whoever's setting up this money thing, Jonesy, ain't those Cape guys. What do you mean? Kidnappers are probably from Hamilton or this area. Well, it better not be Hooper. Jones grabbed the plastic bag. He and Coco exited the jeep and walked toward the glass door with the Fletcher rainbow logo over the entrance. Coco opened the door for Jones. Well, it could be JB. I was just thinking that, but I can't see it. He stepped up to the little gray-haired receptionist. Matthias Jones, I'm here with some paint samples for Gordon McPhee. I will buzz, Mr. McPhee. Coco, panning the extensive chandeliered lobby in pure white tiles, hit Jones's shoulder. This place is reeking with money. Fletcher paints all over the eastern United States. Jonesy, I think you're onto something with that paint. Somebody scraped Howard's boat. What's your end game? Identify the paint and see if anybody bought it in Hamilton or Prince William. The paint over the collision with Lark's boat. Pretty good side road theory there, bro. A lanky man with combed over dark hair adjusted his glasses as he carried his clipboard through an inner door. Mr. Jones, I'm Gordon McPhee. I'm the Fletcher's chief chemist. Yes, Mr. McPhee, uh, thank you for testing the paint. Mr. Fletcher insisted that just minutes ago when I met with him. You see, Mr. Fletcher knows there are a limited number of manufactured marine paints and both factory-applied and consumer-driven. I think we should be able to match that paint with the type of boat or paint that was purchased locally to repair surface contusions from a collision. Yeah, well, that's my theory. We should have something on it later this morning. The receptionist signaled to Jones. Excuse me, Mr. Jones. Uh, Mr. Fletcher is on his way down here. Oh? I have your cell, Mr. Jones, said McPhee. I will call you later this morning. Thank you. McPhee had no sooner disappeared through the corridor doorway when Hamilton Fletcher exited the brass elevator. He had shed his suit coat and waved Jones over to the front door. Coco moved with Jones across the lobby and joined Hamilton Fletcher outside. Hamilton stroked his thin gray mustache. His pasty face highlighted his blue eyes in the morning sun. George Strickland has just informed me that Driscoll is being held for a million dollars ransom. While we were looking into the Howard murder and Driscoll trailed us down to a bar on Cape Cod last night. Why was he kidnapped, Coco? asked Hamilton. He may have had knowledge of the Howard thing by accident. No, said Jones. They want the money. That's the key. My son Ham is getting that money as we speak. Jones wondered why Hamilton was involved. Are you coordinating this with George Strickland? No, Pinky Harris and the state police. Captain Moxie. They know about the pickup in Hamilton Bay. My phone is in the car. What do you need us to do, Hamilton? Let's go out to my office and we'll reconnect with Pinky. Jones sat in a high-back leather chair as Pinky Harris finished questioning him about the pendulum. Here's what we want you to do. Bring that cash out to the boat at 5 o'clock. We've already contacted Captain Kendall the marina. I'll meet with you away from the marina. Okay, Pinky, I'll wait for your call. Yeah. Jones handed the phone back to Hamilton. I'll be meeting you later, Pinky, and I'll bring the money out to the marina. I'm in your debt, Matthias, he said, shaking Jones's hands. 
Then he escorted Coco and Jones toward the door of a wood-paneled office overlooking Prince William and the Crosstown Bridge. Gordon will call you the moment we know about that paint. He shook Jones's hand again and put his hand briefly on Coco's shoulder. Jones walked along the glass-lined corridor and said nothing to Coco until they were in the elevator. Don't you think it's odd that he's involved in any of this? Look, Jonesy, uh, Fletch is involved in a lot of stuff. I would just, uh, I wouldn't go there. What stuff? Hey, what did I just say? Then you know something. Maybe I do, but let's just leave it at that. Jones drove Coco down from Sal's grill. He dipped into more french fries as he followed the shore. Coco chuckled. Hard to believe you're putting your life on the line for Driscoll. When you put it like that, I'm liable to head back to my house. Hey, believe me when I tell you, that old man will never forget it. Bucky's a security cop. A million dollars? This makes no sense. Obviously, somebody thinks they could get that million bucks. Coco, you have to tell me why Hamilton is putting up a million dollars. Can't do that. The killer knew Hamilton would pay, said Jones. Right, but Jonesy, the old man knows a lot of people. Sure. Jones slowed as he approached the marina. If it's J.B., Coco, you know her. She'd have knowledge of Bucky from the track. Coco shook his head. The rodent knew Howard, but J.B. wouldn't know nothing about Driscoll. No, but here's what I'm thinking. Other people knew Bucky or Hamilton. Nobody would have that knowledge. What knowledge? She's not the killer, okay? He pulled onto the side bike path near the marina bridge. The vantage point gave him a clear view of the harbor master's house and the docks and bay beyond. O'Connell would be privy to everybody's business. And the guy always pushes the envelope. I know a dozen bad characters who would take him down. Why would O'Connell want a million bucks? I told you, he and Howard's wife, they're leaving town, Jonesy. Some secret getaway. Coco remained in the jeep with his binoculars and cell phone. Jones approached George Strickland, talking on his cell phone in front of Captain Kendall's house. How do you know this, Craig? No, here he comes now. Who is it? asked Jones. Captain Moxie. understand you're taking a little boat ride tonight. Can I ask you something, Captain? Go. Why is Mr. Fletcher putting up a million bucks for a security cop at Hamilton College? We aren't considering that. I'm more concerned, Matthias, that you should be well armed. I am said Jones, thinking back to the gun once given to him by Coco that he had removed from his bedside table. Janet Boudreaux flew out of Ontario in Southern California to New York. She filled her gas tank four times on a straight line to Prince William, but she's essentially missing. Oh, she and O'Connell are certainly prime suspects. A million dollars is a lot of money. It's been microscopically marked. We can scan the bills and there's a transmitter in the bag. George has Hamilton Fletcher in the harbor master's house. Understood. Good luck. Thank you. Jones handed the phone back to Strickland. When Matthias is on his way, we'll provide you a real-time feed, Craig. He turned to Jones and looked into his friend's eyes. I'm not as much worried about Boudreaux, but O'Connell would be dangerous. Agreed, said Jones as they started down toward the lower docks. Craig said Hamilton is inside. Absolutely he's inside. He's being a pain in the ass. Both Hamilton and Ham are in there with Wendell. He can monitor everything from up there. So I hand the bag to the killer and take Bucky in the boat. And then get the hell back here. As soon as you're in the clear, we'll send the chopper from the Pequonica River area. Make sure Bucky is with you. 
They reached the dock. Kevin Phillips spoke with Dom Pacheco in an alcove under the building. Jones moved out of the sunshine. Dom, you know how to drive that boat? asked Phillips with a smile. You make it sound like I'm getting in an 18-wheeler, Kevin. Yeah, I think I can take a cruise around the harbor. The Coast Guard has boats ready in Prince William and out at sea. What if they don't release Bucky? Then you call us right away on the radio in the boat, said Strickland. He checked his watch. Should get underway. I'm worried about the daylight. Keep the radio open. It's on a protected police channel. What would you do if you were the blackmailer, asked Jones. Excuse me? asked Strickland, turning back. It's always good to stake out the competition before you face them. This isn't a football game, coach, said Herbert Lane as he walked into the alcove. He wore a green baseball cap with his website printed on the front in white letters. HerbertLane.com. Another fundraiser, eh, Herbert? Jones, I've already voiced my opinion about your being involved in this. Let me guess why you're here. To take credit when we get the killer. Shut up, Jones. Does he have to be here, George? Asked Jones. Listen, Jones. Strickland stepped between the two men. Shut up. Well, he started it. I don't care who started it, Herbert. I want you up with the captain and Hamilton Fletcher. You don't tell me, George. Strickland nodded at one of the Prince William cops who approached Herbert Lane. Lane grimaced at Jones and then retreated up the stairs toward the captain's house. Strickland closed his eyes briefly and shook his head as if he were trying to remove the image of the district attorney from his thoughts. He exhaled and nodded to the other state trooper. The shorter man brought a dark canvas bag over to Strickland. Be assured there is one million dollars in the bag, wrapped in waterproof plastic. There's a boat on the left, marked Harrison, stenciled on the side. Guide that outboard from the rear motor. You'll have to start it by hand. If you're brought out too far, I would advise turning around. This boat is made for the bay, and the bay is calm right now. Strickland handed the bag to Jones. I just bring Bucky back and you guys go after the killer. Correct. Now get out there. Jones nodded and shook his hand. Phillips tapped his shoulder and, and Don Pacheco nodded as he passed. He looked beyond the docks to the rock jetty extending into the murky bay. The horizon lined the bright sky, but he did not see the approaching boat. Jones had not told Strickland of his concern about the pending darkness. He had taken the small boat out less than a mile from shore. To his left, as the boat bobbed in the gentle waves, the lights of the Prince William buildings began to twinkle, and the red beacons atop the Crosstown Bridge flashed intermittently with the approaching night. His cell phone sounded. Jones. Hey, Popeye the Sailor. I think you've been conned. Looks that way, and it's getting dark. I'm going to head back to the marina. Herbert showed up. Yeah, I saw the limo. The old man threw him out of Kendall's house. Jones grabbed the cord to start the small motor. You're kidding. No, they never get along. The old man knows Lane's a bullshitter. Hamilton doesn't tolerate fools gladly. Yeah, you got that right. He, uh, wait, Jonesy, I see a boat out there. Jones released the cord and panned the dimly lit harbor. Where? North, by the river. Jones at first saw the blinking mass lights and then the outline of a boat slightly larger than the maintenance-free. So they wait till dark to get away. Hold on, Coco. Jones activated his microphone. George, do you see that boat? 
No. Up near the Pequonicut. The Coast Guard has it. They're moving in from offshore. Delay them as long as possible. Oh, sure. There's something else by the flats heading out toward you. I can't see the damn thing. It's probably the Coast Guard. No, it's too small. Jones looked back toward Prince William in the dunes, along the beach grass toward the flats. I can't see it, Coco. Then he turned north. The larger boat was less than a half a mile away. He even heard the engines. Further out, he didn't see the Coast Guard boats. That boat hull may have a red rim. Isn't that interesting? Sure. This is the bastard that scraped Howard's boat. I'll give him the cash, get Bucky, and get back to the marina. The rodent will never shut up how he is ransomed out for a million bucks. The boat with the red-rimmed hull had no designated name, nor was there anyone on deck. Somehow it maneuvered directly alongside Jones in the small rescue boat. He activated the open radio channel. Who are you? shouted Jones as he gripped his handgun in the side holster. The water lapped against the red rim. Where's Driscoll? Then he heard a distorted voice on an amplified system as if the perpetrator were part of a witness protection program. Before I answer that, where's Driscoll? A minute had passed on his cell phone. Then the muffled voice of Bucky Driscoll rose from below deck. Everything is ship-shaped, Matthias. Are you all right, Bucky? After a pause, Bucky's voice sounded again. Oh, yeah, I've had a great time. Jones winced and stared at the boat. Satisfied, Jones? Asked the modulated voice. Send him up ordered Jones. Oh, no. Let's see the money. I have the bag in my hand. Bring Driscoll up on deck. I will not. No deal, said Jones. You don't even have the guts to show yourself, do you, O'Connell? After a short silence, the voice resonated again. These are your options, Jones. He said as Jones heard a boat engine approaching to his right. You don't hand over that money, and I will kill Driscoll. You're lying, said Jones, but the boat engine garnered his attention. A single light shined across the bay water from 50 feet away. Hooper's almost intolerable voice shot through a megaphone. Attention! Attention! You are surrounded by the most elite commandos in the world. You will surrender immediately. You fool! Get out of here! Send up Driscoll. With no reply, Jones turned. Hooper's small dinghy moved up at high speed in the dim light. Jones set down the canvas bag and waved both hands at Hooper. Veer off, Hooper! Forward, Jones! We'll take this vessel! You pompous little pea brain! Hooper never slowed and sideswiped Jones's boat. The canvas bag was catapulted upward and splashed in the bay. Within seconds, the red-rimmed boat nudged along toward the bag. Someone in a Richard Nixon mask appeared on deck and said nothing and lifted the bag from the water. Nice going, Hooper. You let them get the bag. It was quite a bold move, yes. Now we can attack and board that vessel. The red rim boat moved away into the burgeoning darkness. Face it, Jones. You are outfoxed, said Hooper in the other boat. Outfoxed. Incredible. Jones grabbed the radio. They have the money and they just left. 
Why did you do that, Jones? asked Pinky Harris. You can thank Hooper for crashing this party. You tell that moron I'm issuing an arrest warrant. Hotty ha ha ha, laughed Hooper. I heard that. Listen, you little spy in your own mind. The local authorities never intimidated me, replied Hooper. Get that chopper up in the air before it gets pitch black out there, shouted Pinky. Looks as if I only have one choice, said Hooper, standing precariously at the edge of the boat. Jones just stared at Hooper. You know, we should team up, Jones. Finish the mission. I think I'll await orders from headquarters, Clyde, said Jones with more sarcasm than usual. Ah, then you do have a central command. I'm going back to the marina said Jones, looking west. The Devonshire hills were outlined against the faint glow after sunset. I suggest you surrender yourself to Trooper Harris. Clyde Hooper never surrenders. Jones heard the dinghy engine start again, and Hooper quickly disappeared into the darkness. Matthias, this is George. You tell Hooper the charges are being filed as we speak. Can't tell him anything, said Jones with his hand on the engine rope. He's left after screwing up everything. You're kidding. Clyde Hooper follows orders from no mortal man. Jones emerged from the bathroom in his sweatpants and hoodie. He dried his hair with a white towel as Coco handed him a Coke from the refrigerator. Jonesy, I got no love lost for Driscoll, but Hooper's got more than one screw loose. Jones sipped the carbonated bubbles. I don't know where Locke finds these people. Hey, Lassen ain't too swift himself. Jones sat at the counter. The person piloting that boat wore a Richard Nixon mask and used an electronic voice. You know J.B., would she do something like that? Nah, it's not her style. She'd hire somebody if she did that. Tell you she's a nice kid. Jones set down the coke. Hamilton Fletcher flipped out. He's blaming you? No, Hooper. Jones's cell rang. Coco slid the phone back across the counter. Jones! Oh, thank God. I was just talking about Hooper. Coco shook his head and drank his beer. Then he ran his fingers on his chin. Hamilton is holding him personally responsible for the million-dollar screw-up. Nicky is supposed to bring Hooper over to Herbert Lane, where they will book him for obstruction and a number of other charges. Good. Hooper's dangerous. Matthias, we still haven't found Boudreaux or O'Connell. One of them brought that boat into the bay. I'm not so sure. Strickland's voice got louder. What do you mean you're not sure? O'Connell wouldn't use that hokey voice changer and the mask, and Boudreaux wouldn't pilot the boat. You don't know that, said Strickland. Jones closed his eyes briefly. Just my gut feeling, George. Her father, the attorney, is not available, and her mother says she hasn't been in contact with her. Doesn't mean she's back here. I'm aware of that. I'll talk to you later, George. Well, the Coast Guard turned him over to Pinky. Let's see if he let's see if he talks tough when he gets to Herbert Lane's office. Yeah, right. There's one huge missing piece in all of this, Coco. But I'll be damned if I know what it is. The Handyman's Secret by R. P. Fitton. Chapter eighteen. 
Jones watched the video of his big win against St. Pat's last November. He turned to Chris and Mark in the communications department. We need to cut another 10 minutes. You know how Hamilton Fletcher likes things right to the point. The pep rally coach? Take it out, answered Jones as he looked up at the gray-haired Tom McGill. Ah, it's waiting for you to hunt me down, Tom. Just have a few million-dollar questions. Very funny, but you can thank that nitwit Hooper for blowing the whole operation. Then it's true. Yeah, it's true, said Jones, walking with him to the windows, overlooking the brick campus buildings. Bucky was right on deck. The kidnapper had the money, and Bucky was about to be released when Hooper comes out of nowhere in a boat shouting through a megaphone. Well, I'm sorry I have to be the one to tell you this. Tell me what? Hooper was released. Jones spun around. How? Word I have is Herbert was called by somebody high up in Washington. That's not possible. Jones squinted and shook his head. I need to call Don Pacheco just to verify this. Good. Then they'll suffer the consequences. Who do you think brought that boat out there? Tom, I have no idea. O'Connell? I don't know what happened to O'Connell, but he wouldn't play games like that. It's unlikely Boudreaux would come out there. She doesn't need the money. Jones' cell phone sounded in his pocket. Jones. Science, this is Gordon McPhee. Good morning, Gordon. I hope you're one of the few people in the world that has good news this morning. Well, you don't know whether it's good or bad. Lay it on me. Well, the paint is definitely ours. The titanium level is commensurate with our marine paint. No one has that color. It's called Wonder Red and sold locally at Dewar's Lumber. Great work, Gordon. I checked our marine Epoxy paint number 12667, Wonder Red. A yellow and brown label. Doers should have that right on the shelf. Gordon, I think that's the break I've been waiting for. Arnie Dewar spent too much time talking and applied an equal effort wasting time. Jones stuck his head inside the air-conditioned portion of the contractor's section of Dewar's lumber, lit by overhead fluorescent tubes and surrounded by gray pegboard. The area always smelled and looked mechanical. When he did not see Arnie, he closed the pane glass door and walked inside. Large five-gallon buckets of paint were stacked in the cement, and gallon cans were neatly lined up with the red labels along the wall. Little Bill Richards, close to 80 years old, stood in his blue-striped Dewar's shirt at the paint mixing table. The paint shaker next to him vibrated crazily. Ah, uh, how you doing, Matthias? Good, Bill. Uh, you got a few minutes? Yeah, I was just mixing something for a builder for work tomorrow. He wiped his hands and stepped forward. I know I'll regret asking this, but is Arnie around? Actually, he's working on something real important. Oh, yeah, right. Look, Bill, I'm looking for Fletcher Marine Paint, Marine Epoxy Paint, number 12667. Marine Paint is down the back aisle there. Jones followed him, passed an assortment of brushes and rollers. We actually do more marine paint than anything else. Really? 12667. I think that's a red paint, if I'm not mistaken. You know your stuff. It's wonder red. Along the back wall, pegboard shelves were lined with brown and yellow cans. Quartz were on the top. I need to know if anyone came in here buying paint for a small boat. Bill raised his brows. Well, people come in here all the time, Matthias. Plus, when I'm not here, we've got other people covering the department pulled a gallon bucket by the handle and adjusted his glasses as he checked the label. Wonder Red! 
You must remember somebody local buying it this spring, maybe. Well, we could check the records. A lot of people buy this color. I didn't realize that. Jones visualized the red streak and now wondered whether he could even track down the vessel. If I could get to the records, say, the last few months? Yeah, I'd have that on the computer. Jones scanned the store for the gawky Arnie. This boat could have been painted at any time. Bill stepped up to the counter and tapped the keys. An array of green digits and letters filled the darkened screen. What I'll do is I'll list all the marine paints from March. I'm looking for the name O'Connell, Mabel Howard, or Boudreaux. Okay. An actual bill of sale form flashed on the monitor at the far end of the store. Arnie Dewis's loud grating laugh overtook the speaker music. Jones stepped into the main aisle. Arnie, cigarette-packed, rolled up in his blue-striped jersey sleeve, was joking with yeah, Muddy Jacobs in the lumber section. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. no. Arnie? asked Bill. Yep. <laughs> you tell him, Muddy. Yeah, you got all the answers down the dump. Is there another computer terminal? I just want to do this in peace and quiet. I understand there's one in the warehouse, but Arnie could be back there, too. It's just that Arnie has such a big mouth, said Jones. Well, you don't have to tell me. Bill hit something on the keyboard and the screen went blank. He yanked Jones's arm and they backtracked through the two swinging doors as Arnie's voice resonated only a few aisles away. Yeah, we got this stuff all stocked for springtime. Come in here and get your spring orders. No, no, not just paint everything. The whole store, it's all stocked up. They hiked between the mammoth lumber stack and dodged the racing propane-powered forklifts. Bill motioned him toward a small glass office across from the main doors. What if he follows us back here, Bill? We'll just say I'm writing an invoice for you. Bill opened the door and sat at the desk. Again, he tapped the keys. The same March invoice for three gallons of marine paint popped on the screen. Sold to a G. Franklin, Prince William. G. Franklin. Jones looked outside the glass toward the two sales floor doors. Anybody else sell this paint in town? Well, Jefferson's Hardware did, but Courtney kept mistinning the paint to the wrong color shade and then tried to get credit for the gallons from the Fletchers. They finally refused to sell paint to him. That sounds like Courtney. None of the names looked familiar, and Jones alternately peered out the window to check for Arnie as Bill flipped through the March invoices. You guys sell a lot of paint. We do. Anything ring a bell? Maybe I'll have to get a printout and track the names. Arnie pushed open the lumber room doors and pulled out his cigarette pack from his sleeve. Oh no, here he is. Pull the blinds. Jones checked the door and window blinds. Then he grabbed the cord and dropped the blinds. He squinted through the slats. Arnie and two warehouse men sat on a stack of plywood, but Arnie's voice was muffled through the wall. For the next five minutes, Bill retrieved all the March invoices, but nothing significant showed up. Yeah, sit down, relax. Life's too short to really be pushing it. Yeah, I might go over the racetrack this weekend. I don't know. The Buckster says to put the money down on Jingle Bells. Apparently Arnie doesn't know that Bucky's been kidnapped. I'm relying on a wing and a prayer bill. That boat could have been painted at any time. And the scrape on Webster's boat might mean nothing. You want me to try April? Yeah, thanks, Bill. Jones's phone sounded, and he kept his eyes trained on the computer screen as he pulled the phone from his back pocket. The transmission weakened. Jones. Detective Hooper here. You're in big trouble, Hooper. 
A new order flashed before him, and Bill looked up, and Jones shook his head. I'm moments away from apprehending O'Connell. Listen, Clyde, you don't have to impress me, but Strickland and Pinky aren't going to put up with their shenanigans, even though you have this big connection. My operatives don't waste time with small fry. Oh, shut up. Ani threw his spent cigarette across the cement, precariously close to a stack of paint thinner, and then headed back inside the store. Stupid moron. No need to get personal, Jones. Well, if the shoe fits, Hooper. My sources have fed me the lead. Hooper, get out of this case. Get out of my life. Clyde Hooper will not fold in the face of slander and balladash. Jones hung up, but the cigarette glowed red, less than three feet away from the flammable metal cans. Jones opened the door, rushed into the warehouse, and stomped on the smoldering butt, and dragged the tobacco across the cement with his sneaker. Bill shook his head at the door. It's a wonder this place hasn't burned down to the ground years ago, he said, kicking the door shut. Jones pulled up a chair as Bill sat down and turned the invoices on the computer. Why would Hooper make up a story about locating O'Connell? Alluding to an exaggeration was more his style. Maybe he did have the troop run his surveillance. Jones checked the swinging doors and gazed back at the screen, and the next invoice appeared. The Christian Youth Group. Bingo. What was that, Matthias? Oh, yeah. Three or four kids came in here. I remember them. Five gallons. I told them they were buying too much. They charged it. I don't believe this. Where did they say the boat was located? I guess they have a camp up the Pequonicut River. Bricker. Well, this could be interesting. You keep this under wraps, Bill. Sure, don't even worry about it. Thanks, said Jones, tapping his shoulder. He stepped into the warehouse again, but opted to use the outside lumber entrance. Bricker had connections with Harriman's group and had used the facilities according to Melanie Willard. Jones stopped at the loading dock and looked through the trees toward the railroad tracks. Why would Bricker want Webster Howard dead? Where was Bricker when Bucky was kidnapped? As much as he did not like Bricker, even the speculation down this side road made no sense. Bricker had no motive and Jones had no evidence. Matthias! He spun to his left. Arnie, new cigarette hanging from the corner of his mouth, swung his arms as he walked under the lumber canopies. How are you, Arnie? I'm fair to Midland. Ha ha ha! Say, I hear you're doing a TV reality show. What? Yeah, you're putting together a reality show for the college. You know, trying to be a producer is a kind of a pipe dream. I'm not trying to be a producer, and it's not a reality show. I'm not even, That's why you're walking around telling everybody you're producing big TV specials. The communications department is making a retrospective video of the year at Hamilton. They do this every year. I have a minor in communications back home. I'm just overseeing the effort. Well, it was nice seeing you, Arnie. Jones hated it when Arnie elbowed his ribs. Don't want to admit it, just in case you bomb, huh? Right. Well, have a good one. Arnie followed him through the yard and around the building. So I hear the detective took the wind out of your sails out on the bay. He's not a detective. Don't put him down just because you haven't solved Webster's murder. Jones was tempted to sprint to his jeep. Arnie, been nice. Arnie inhaled and chucked the cigarette into a sawdust pile to his left. This place is going to go up in one big fireball. Huh? You just threw the cigarette into the dust. Ah, you worry too much, Matthias. Sawdust don't burn. Arnie shook his head and moved back into the yard as Jones stared at the increasing smoke billow from the pile. 
He debated whether to leave the cigarette. Then he hurried to the pile, kicked it out, and snuffed it again with his sneaker. He heard Arnie's honking laugh as he returned to the Jeep. Ha <laughs> ha, yeah! Ha <laughs> ha, yeah, he's making a reality show! With the afternoon just beginning, he checked with Melanie Willett, and she agreed to meet at the Christian camp on the Quantucket River, north of town. Strangely, Hamilton Fletcher put up a million dollars for Bucky's kidnappers. Hmm, why? I ask you, why? Well, there is a reason. And later on, they confront the kidnapper's voice. Then Hooper gets into the mix, but Jones does track down who bought the paint. I'm Robert P. Fitton, ready for the last installment of The Handyman's Secret coming up next week. Good evening. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com, or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.